0: Welcome to episode 76, Switching Gears from Individual to Couple Therapy, Establishing the Basics, featuring Shane Burkle, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. everyone this is shane burkle i am the host of the couples therapist couch podcast a podcast that's all about the practice of couples therapy and i'm so excited to be with here here with you today to talk about the topic of how couples therapy is very different than individual therapy and i have spoken with uh lots and lots of expert couples therapists about the practice of couples therapy and I I think all of you would agree that uh, we don't get nearly enough training in this in our programs and um, it's a completely different thing than individual therapy and so before I get into that topic let me tell you a little bit more about myself I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in New Hampshire I'm about an hour from Boston and I have a private practice and uh, like I said, I've, I have almost 100 episodes on the Couples Therapist Couch podcast. Each episode is an interview where I talk with an expert in the field of couples therapy. And uh, we just dive deep into the, um, the uh, talking about what works well for doing the work of couples therapy. And so I think uh, as we begin to get into this, as we begin to get into the topic Um, I might be going a little fast on some of the things. Uh, I want to give you a really good understanding and framework and some ideas about what you're thinking about when you're working with couples. I definitely think if you want to keep going with this, you're going to have to keep taking more trainings. There's some great couples therapy models out there. And um, I created a course called Working with Couples 101, which is free that you can have access to uh, in addition to this. But um, I won't go over all that stuff, uh, but I will hopefully hit on some of of the main points. When we have two people coming in to see us in therapy, we have to consider both of their realities. And I think there's a sad uh, reality in our society and in our culture, which is that people have terrible relationship skills. And um, oftentimes we grow up with models our parents, and no matter how healthy they are, no matter how good we think our upbringing was, uh, it's not perfect. And we believe that um, whatever we grew up with is normal, quote unquote normal. I don't know how many times I've asked someone, and and as therapists you can probably relate, how many times I've asked someone, you know, tell me a little bit about your family, growing up in your family with your parents. And um, people will say, well, I had a totally normal childhood. And um, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I have no idea what that means. And you can see this a lot of times when there are um, partners who are together from very different cultures. And they have a very hard time navigating some conversations because what they think is normal in growing up in their family is something that their partner may have never heard of or may not understand or, or Doesn't know. So this idea of communication between the partners becomes so important. And I think this is one of the foundations of working with couples is that there's no right. Uh, There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. It's about let me tell you what works for me and let me get really good at listening and taking in and being receptive to your experience and your reality and what's going on for you. Um, all of us can probably imagine situations where we have these couples where it's almost like they're keeping score and it just goes back and forth and back and forth and no one's really being vulnerable and nobody's really listening. And it's like, uh, you know, I can't believe you didn't take the trash out today. And then the other person says, well, I don't like the way you're talking to me. And then it just goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, and it's not helpful and we need, As therapists, we need tools and frameworks in order to know what healthy relationship skills are and uh, to be able to impart these on our clients. And that doesn't mean like when I'm with my wife uh, or or my kids, I am not capable of being in a healthy relationally all the time. I make mistakes. Things come out sideways sometimes with an edge when i'm with my wife and i you know so but i do think that there we can have a good understanding of what we're shooting for we can have we can do the work it takes it has taken so much work for me to improve in the small interactions that i have with my wife and my family and so i think as we're thinking about couples and, and and relationships You know, I think people have terrible relationship skills just in general, and that comes from our culture and our evolution and the fact that our brains evolved 200,000 years ago and the society we live in now is nothing like what we were living with at that time. And so um, we have to have a lot of compassion about that. And if someone grew up in a family that was pretty bad as far as being abusive or neglectful or something like that, then there's going to be a lot of work to do, not because they don't care and they're not trying, but because um, they just haven't had the modeling and they haven't learned the skills. And so when we're dealing with couples, there are two levels of um, stuff that we're dealing with. Now, the the top level or the upper level is the relationship skills themselves. And so anybody can come in here and I can sort of Give them the textbook version of, look, when your wife does this, you need to, you should respond like this. And when your husband does this, then you need to respond like this. And people can take it in and listen and say, you know, oftentimes I tell people, if you do what I tell you, your relationship will be completely fine and healed. So the second level is the fact that they can't do it or what comes up for them as they're trying to use these skills uh, emotionally on, on, a, on a gut level, on an emotional level, um, underlying psychological themes that are going on for them, that they try to use these skills and they aren't capable of doing it. And so we have to be able to deal with that as well. You know, you, I think this is related to trauma work. Oftentimes it is trauma work that um, needs to happen. I think it's really beautiful when um, couples can do that kind of work in the presence of each other. And I often do that in my work with couples. Now, let me take a step back really quick. Um, When we're doing couples work, as I said, it's very different from individual work. And as the therapist sitting in the room with a couple, I want to make sure that each person feels really heard and really understood by me. And so when they start talking about the you know one of the first questions i'll ask them when they come in is what are you hoping for probably like most of you um and when they start to to go into what they want i focus on one partner for a very long period of time and i don't let the other partner interrupt and i'm setting really good boundaries from the very beginning and the boundaries that i have for myself and for the conversation uh, I'm actually modeling good relationship skills with them. And I'm aware of what uh, is okay and what's not okay relationally in the conversation. So one person might start talking like, you know, this is going on. This is what I want. This is what I'm hoping for. This is what is not happening in their relationship. And the other partner might start correcting them, which often happens. But what I'll do in that moment is I'll um, you know, this could be 10 minutes after I've met the, met the couple, I'll put my hand up and I'll say, wait, 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 wait a second. Uh, I want, I really want to understand where you're coming from and be able to take in your perspective, but let me finish with your partner first before we get into that. And I'll keep talking to partner a, and I won't let partner B interrupt and people fall right into line most of the time. Um, people start to get it, and when you set those good boundaries from the beginning, you're making, um, you're you're setting the expectations for what the rest of the work is going to look like. Now, obviously, some people have a harder time with it than others, but uh, I'm taking a very directive approach as the couples therapist in my work with the couple. And so, as we, as I get all the information from partner A, I'm taking in. I'm letting them know that I get where they're coming from and I'm taking it in. Now, as I'm taking in the information, there are three um, ways that I'm gathering information. I focus on what they say, uh, what their um, nonverbal communication looks like, what they're feeling, the way that they're talking about it, their, their emotions that they might express as they're talking about it, And then I'm also checking in with how I feel about what's going on. You know, a lot of times um, you might have a partner who's much more vocal than the other partner. And uh, so let's say the partner A is saying, you know, my wife never does this and she's always this and blah, blah, blah. Um, And so what I'm hearing is that that person's wife is a huge problem and the issue causing all of the problems in the relationship. And but what I'm in the back of my mind, what I'm thinking is this person presenting this information uh, seems to me like they might be a lot more of the issue in the relationship. And um, you know Terry Real in relational life therapy likes to say that we do take sides. Meaning I am looking for who's more relationally off in this relationship as I'm conducting the interview. Because um, the other thing is uh, that, I, that I think is really important that we talk about is leverage. And leverage is super important. I love talking about leverage. I could talk about it all day long. But basically, we have to have a sense of how much we can push, how much um, each partner is committed to their relationship. And uh, let me give you an example. If if we have um two partners let's say John and Michelle and uh John and Michelle both come in and they say we are pretty committed to this relationship we want to make it work we're willing to to do what it takes then uh i know i have leverage with both of them and it makes my life a little bit easier now um if i if John and Michelle come in and uh Michelle says Uh, I have one foot out the door, I'm tired of this, this has been going on for years, things have to change. Then in the back of my mind as a therapist, I'm thinking to myself, I do not have a lot of leverage with Michelle. I need to take her concerns very seriously because if this doesn't go well, she's going to be out the door. And John at the same time might be saying something like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want this to work. I'm totally committed. And so I know that I have leverage with John. I've got the leverage, at least in that sense of the word. Um, And so I can be a lot more direct and lovingly confrontational with John than I might be able to be with Michelle. And so what that might look like as we work through certain conversations, you know, Michelle might, might be say, um, whenever I bring up a problem with John, he gets really defensive. And of course, John's going to say, no, I don't. Um, and so what I'm going to do in that case is I'm going to, I might, you know, say, John, John, hold on a second. Hold on a second. We want to take in what she's talking about and I'm going to, I'm going to focus on helping Michelle feel like she's heard by John. And um every time John starts getting defensive, I'm going to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey John, that that's what she's talking about. That's that defensiveness. I just, you know, I, I just want to be able to help you see what she's talking about so you can practice these skills." Now, um I might not be able to do the same thing with the thing that, um, that she's doing that are off. I might not be able to be as direct with her because um, we really need to focus on the first step is making her feel her concerns feel heard because I know I've leverage with John and I want to make sure that she starts to feel like she's going to get what she needs from this process in order to continue coming and continue working on it and continue staying in the relationship. So I hope that makes sense. The other thing... About leverage, that's really important is uh, motivation. It's it's about am I motivated to make the changes that my partner is asking for? So let's let's use something really tangible on on the surface level. Let's say that um, Michelle says, "You know, John um, sleeps in till eight o'clock every morning." And I'd really like it if he could wake up at 730 and he and I could have coffee together and um, we'd have that opportunity to connect in the morning and start our day off. And so if this came out a couple weeks ago and they're back for another session, um, she is she's telling me she's really upset because John isn't hasn't been following through on the request that she made. And so I talked to couples about this a lot. John doesn't um, isn't feeling motivated enough to do the the work, you know, and and I'm and that's where I bring into the conversation the reality of what's going to happen. And I might, you know, it could take quite a while. I'm oversimplifying it, but I might say to Michelle, OK, what's going to happen if he doesn't start getting up earlier? And um, she might say, well, I'm going to be really upset. Well, okay, well, what happens when you get upset? Well, I might start complaining and, you know, I'm going to say, okay, well, you've been complaining for a long time. And she might say, well, you know, if this doesn't change uh, or some of the other things that I'm talking about don't change, then I'm leaving this relationship. Now, when John is sitting there with his alarm going off at 7.30 I want him to think about, I want him to make the connection that your relationship, your family, I want you to imagine you and your wife and your kids on Christmas morning, uh, or, or I want you to imagine yourself not being with your wife and your kids on Christmas morning or your kid's next birthday, that you're all by yourself in some small crappy apartment um, because you didn't do this work. That's leverage. That's motivation. That's getting to something that is going to lead us to change. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that I the reason why I don't, you know, lose 10 pounds. It's like when I'm ra- when I'm in my day to day life, I'm like, well, I can just eat this one one more candy bar. I mean, that's not going to make a whole whole difference, but that happens day in and day out, day after day. Or for me, actually, it's ice cream. Uh, Let's let's be clear. And so when, um, you know, then it's like three years later and I'm wondering how come I've never been able to uh, lose these 20 pounds that I've been trying to lose. And the it takes a it takes me maybe doing some sort of meditation on what imagining my life uh, ending like I'm going to actually die five years sooner than I otherwise would because of unhealthy lifestyle habits, or I'm not going to have as much energy to play with my kids as I get older or whatever things like that. That is the motivation for change. But if I just get wrapped up in the day to day, I'm going to go for the pleasure. The motivation of the pleasure of the ice cream is clouding my ability to see what should really be motivating me in the situation And so part of working through these conversations is to get people, you know, I think, I think as therapists, you know, when I was a younger therapist and some of the therapists who I work with in supervision, they, they're scared. They're scared to take it to that level. They're scared to tell someone you will lose your relationship and your family if you don't change. And, um, you can do that from a really loving, respectful place, but people need to hear this. They need to understand that the stakes are this high. I, I often see um, a partner who finally moves out and leaves because they're so tired of it. And then the other partner all of a sudden has all this energy and motivation to change. And, and oftentimes it's too late. So we have to bring that reality to the forefront to help them see this right in front of them now um, we all have limiting beliefs that we grow up with in our family and there's so much going on i believe underneath the surface psychologically and emotionally that we're not aware of and um, this is part of what plays into the the uh... unhealthy relational mm-hmm. dynamics between couples and let me give Another example. So let's say that uh, Michelle grew up in a family where uh, you, if you had a wet towel after you took a shower or something, uh, you hung it up. That was the expectation. And when she was three years old or four years old or five years old, she left a wet towel on the floor and her mom was super critical and yelled at her and shamed her and let her know that we are not the type of people who leave wet towels on the floor. What kind of person are you that you would leave a wet towel on the floor? Now, this kind of thing has a really deep imprint on our brain. It forms neural pathways and, you know, we have to assume that there would probably be multiple situations like that that, um, Contribute to. And, and eventually, um, there are two ways that we learn and that our brains form. One is in response to the mother's comments and shaming, and the other is modeling the mother's co- comments and shaming. So, um, in response to that, uh, Michelle either becomes super critical and shaming of, of people in her own life. With her, you know, potentially with her partner, or that she reacts to that and says, "I will, ne- I never want to be like that," and so she becomes overly permissive, of you know, people can just leave things wherever they want, and she doesn't care. So um, <clears throat> that's just one small example. All of us um, growing up in our families, we either um, end up modeling certain behaviors and traits of our parents. Or it could be like I model my dad and I re- and I react in an opposite way to my mom and I replay out the dynamic in my own relationship that they had that and it looks similar. Or um, it could play out in a lot of different ways. And so what happens is um, all of a sudden we're with our partner and let's say John leaves his wet towel on the floor um, and let's say... It, the particular way that Michelle responds is she has a whoosh of emotion come up from her toes up through her heart into her neck and her head. And, and this emotion feels like, Oh my gosh, what kind of person are you that you would leave a wet towel on the floor? And she feels incred- incredibly, disrespected and questioning her decision and choosing her partner and um, all of these things go on in our brain without us even knowing. And she might not even remember the interactions she had with her mom when she was four or five years old. That's not even, that's not even going through her mind. She might not even remember that. But it impacts how she feels in the relationship. And for her, that's something that causes a fight-or-flight response and takes her from her functional adult self who's loving and caring and healthy and strong. All of us have this functional adult self who knows how to deal with situations, know how to deal with life and can stay relaxed. That's when we're in our first consciousness and um, we're mindful and present and all of those things. And um, But when we get that whoosh feeling of emotion that comes up based on certain triggers, and we all have different triggers, based on our family of origin, based on our culture, based on um, traumas that we've been through in our life. When we get that flood of emotion, it's a trauma response. It really is. No matter how perfect you think your childhood was, we all have things that were off about growing up in our families. And um, when we have that trauma response, we're dropping into um, what I call an adaptive child state. This is from Pia Melody and John Bradshaw and um, uh, a lot of other people. You know, Terry Real talks a lot about this. But um, the functional adult self is that loving, caring, relaxed, confident, strong person. And the adaptive child is what the adaptation that you formed grow, growing up in your family to deal with stressful situations so the adaptive child comes up into the conversation with our partner and all of a sudden we're in fight or flight and we are incapable of being present and receptive and open to their reality and i think you know at the heart of couples therapy is often this ability to be more and more aware when this is happening And to have a lot of compassion for ourselves and understanding and acceptance and then to bring that compassion and understanding and acceptance to our partner and so often we see that one partner just wants to feel seen and heard and understood and accepted i think that's really at the heart of a lot of what goes on and so um what happens is michelle might try to express this reality you know what kind of person are you that you leave your towel on the floor how could you do this to me and and oftentimes what john might say you know it could go a lot of different ways but oftentimes what we see is some sort of minimizing dismissing defending explaining himself oh well i um I was in a hurry, I was heading to work and I was in a big hurry, and I didn't have time to hang my towel up and then pretty quickly they could be off to the races and um, this is what is called uh, an objectivity battle uh, about well and these could look a lot of different ways, but it's uh, my my reality is more real than yours. Uh, I'm not going to take in what you're saying because uh, I'm more right than you are and so um it becomes very difficult to navigate. And so there are some really specific male-female dynamics that exist in relationships. And we don't have time. I mean, that could be a whole course in itself. And we don't have time to get into that fully today. But just to say a few words about that. um, As men, we're socialized not to be weak, not to express emotions, not to express vulnerability. All emotional... Experienced is filtered through either anger or lust. And so, what happens is that it's very difficult for men because of the way we're socialized from a very young age, but from the time we're kids, we're told, um, you know, just be tough, don't be a burden on anyone else, don't ask for help, don't be like a girl. All of these terrible things for little boys to hear, it's incredibly sad. Um, that makes it so that we grow up, and in our relationships, we're doing everything we can not to be vulnerable. And how could you have a relationship without that kind of vulnerability? That if my partner is upset and saying something about the wet towel on the floor, that instead of thinking, it's like um, some people might call it a lack of self-esteem or trouble with boundaries, You know, I talk a lot about boundaries and self-esteem with my clients. And uh, that's definitely something we should get into today as part of this um, workshop. But that um, if I have really good self-esteem and boundaries and my partner comes at me and says, how could you do this with the wet towel, blah, blah, blah. I take a deep breath and I say, I remind myself, uh, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a good person. I'm enough, and I matter. And I breathe, and I say, and then I can make it about my partner. My partner is hurting in this moment, and I, I want to take in their reality and be understanding and listen to where they're coming from. And um, that's a. At, this is at the fundamental core of what can be a a shift for most relationships. The ability to do what I'm talking about right now uh, can transform relationships. I've seen it happen in one session or a few sessions in a very short period of time when people can get this and people can do it, it can totally make a huge difference. And like I said, I'm gonna go into a lot more detail of what I'm talking about. But what happens is we grow up in these families where we're shamed for being a certain way or doing certain things, or even the school systems shame us for not being good enough. And um, we're taught that we have to prove ourselves. This is both men and women, but it's worse for men as far as the um, performance-based esteem, that um, my value as a human being is based on how I perform in the world. My value on a human being is based on am I making enough money Do I, can I perform sexually in bed? Am I a good husband? Am I whatever, whatever, whatever? And um, proving it one day isn't enough. Every day is a new battle. And so when my wife comes at me and she's accusing me, it's very easy for me to defend myself and protect myself because I don't want to be seen as a bad person. And, um... Also, it takes a lot more vulnerability to not defend myself because if, she, if um, Michelle is, is saying something to John about the towel, he might be able to tolerate the feeling of like, uh, maybe I'm a bad person for doing this for about two seconds and then it flips right up to anger because I don't want to sit with that level of discomfort. Uh, about the fact that uh, I'm a bad person. And so it's gonna, it can very easily become angry um, defensiveness about, well, what's wrong with you? And so what we want to teach couples when they're working with us is that each of them has to be a good listener for the other. And each of them has to be willing to take turns uh, to take in the other person's reality. I often tell people they have to take turns. <clears throat> they both can't be upset at once. They both can't be in their adaptive child at once. That's the fight or flight feeling. And the fight or fly- flight feeling is all about survival. And this comes, again, the, these are neural pathways that were formed when we were three, four, five, six years old, when our survival truly was dependent on our caretakers, on our parents. and. um what happens is, if my mom is yelling at me and upset about the wet towel on the floor, um, what I have to do as a five year old is say to myself, "I'm the problem. what's wrong with me? If I only um, did this better, then my mom would be happy <clears throat> uh, because if I don't do that if i have if I start recognizing that my mom is the one who's off then um I might be abandoned and not survive. So we internalize it as a child and we start to make it about us. And that those neural pathways stay with us into our adulthood. And this goes back to evolutionary survival. You know, when we lived in tribes for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, we were literally dependent on other people in the tribe in order to survive. This is where we learn to be in relationship with others this is beneficial to the survival of our species to be in relationship with others and to be disconnected is um incredibly terrifying and people don't consciously recognize it and they don't admit it but it is terrifying to stare in the face of someone who cares about you and um, feel that this could be in jeopardy, and unfortunately, in our modern society, we don't have the close knit communities like we historically have, and people are becoming more and more isolated. And um, our partner becomes the whole village, and so we start feeling really codependent and um, uh, dependent on our our partner for survival they're fulfilling all of our needs, social, sexual, emotional, psychological, all on that one person. And it feels like a lot of pressure. And so it ends up happening. There are a lot of, you know, family systems, dynamics that end up playing out in relationships. But, you know, uh, if you're using emotionally focused therapy, they talk a lot about the pursuer distancer dynamic, you know, in relational life therapy that I'm certified in, we talk a lot about um, codependence and being walled off and, um, falling somewhere on that spectrum. And th- these dynamic, you know, one partner plays off the other. The more you distance yourself, the more I feel anxious and the more I pursue. And the more I pursue, the more you feel overwhelmed by my needs and the more you distance yourself. And these things, there are all kinds of these family systems, patterns that play out in couples, and so, um, you begin. We begin to see patterns as therapists that are pretty common, and that we see a lot. And so, what what is at the c- core of what needs to happen for so many of these couples is this this detachment from this fight or flight feeling, this feeling that, um, let's say, my Wife is uh, complaining to me about the wet towel, and um, I have a fight-or-flight response, that I need to begin to be a lot more aware of this. I need to get good at possibly removing myself from the situation, taking a healthy time out, and uh, I can go into more detail about um, how to take a healthy time out but I need to um, take care of my own emotions for myself. That if each partner is taking care of their own emotional state, then we can come to each other as our adult selves and be healthy with each other in the relationship. I will take care of myself for you and you will take care of yourself for me. This, is, I believe, is at the heart of what's really important for couples to learn. And so in order to do that, I need to uh, be able to recognize all of these emotions that are flooding in for me, um, that at the same time, all of those emotions are flooding in for my partner. And so I need to be able to set my own emotional stuff to the side and say, this is important, but this isn't where I need to focus right now. I need to be open and listening And receptive to what's going on for my partner because we both can't be in our adaptive child at the same time we both can't be in fight-or-flight at the same time as I said before and so we have to take turns so if my partner comes to me upset I have to take a deep breath and remind myself that my job right now is to make it all about her reality the most important thing I can do is stay calm and open and receptive to what's going on for her. Now, if she calls me a jerk and um, says, what's wrong with you? You uh, always forget to take the trash out, blah, blah, blah. I need to get really good at not focusing on the jerk part. I mean, that is uh, abusive behavior. And I tell people that I have a really clear list of abusive behaviors. Uh, You know, And it's about yelling or screaming at each other, name-calling, being sarcastic or mocking each other, shaming, ridiculing, judging each other. This is all abusive behavior. I set the bar really high as far as the expectations for relational behavior. And no one's allowed to be abusive to each other. So if my wife comes at me and is upset about something and calls me a jerk, I have two options one is i can say um i don't deserve to be name called like that i'm going to remove myself from the situation and take a healthy time out the other is that i can withstand the blow duck under the wave take a deep breath and say you know honey you're so upset what's going on what's why don't i go take out the trash right away and then we can talk about this or whatever it is. But I, I, I don't get sucked into the story that she's telling me. I have to have really good boundaries and a really healthy self-esteem in order to do that. And so um, this is what we need to teach couples. This is a, at the core. And there's something um, that is really helpful when I'm working with couples in my office Uh, that I try to get couples to talk to each other using the feedback wheel. And you can Google this. I don't know. I can give you a link to it if you want. Um, But the feedback wheel is basically four steps, and it forces people to speak from a place of vulnerability. And so when we're working with couples, we have a great opportunity to really slow down the cycle and help them see how it flows and help them do it in a different way. So, um, when they're in our office, uh, this goes back to how different couples therapy is from individual therapy. I, I'm not just going to sit back and listen as they go. They do the same thing that they always do at home. That's not my job as a therapist in my mind. It's also a lot more boring. Um, as a therapist, I'm going to be actively involved in their communication dynamic, in their patterns, in their emotions, in their relational dynamic. And I'm going to stop them if they start doing things that are unhealthy for the communication. I'm going to give them a lot of feedback. I'm going to give them a lot of, you know, even words to use with each other if what the way they're doing it isn't working. And... Um, The feedback wheel is part of what I use for the speaker. And as I said, we're going to establish one listener and one speaker as we're working through some of the communication and conflict cycle stuff. So the speaker has to begin by using this feedback wheel. And what the feedback wheel does is it forces you to speak from the first person. We want to get away, we always want to get away from using you, you do this, from blame, from judgment, from criticism. That's never going to be relational or helpful in the conversation. We have to get really good at speaking from the first person and um, speaking from our own reality. Now, look, there are situations that are uh, abusive where you do need to use a good boundary. And um, that's not what I'm talking about right now. The, the, actually, and I was going to mention, there are three preconditions to couples therapy. One is um, active uh, addiction. Um, we, and, and I'll see people who are uh, struggling with addiction in couples therapy, but basically the rule for me is that you have to be getting treatment for that apart from the couples work. You have to be doing um, whatever the recommended treatment would be for your addiction, uh, and then I'll work with you in couples therapy. The other precondition is um, abuse, definitely physical abuse, and um, depending on the level of emotional and verbal abuse, um, we can evaluate that. I think all of us are emotionally and verbally abusive at times, and um, so part of that is just normal stuff, but in some cases, it's to a level that really, really needs to be addressed outside before we can start working in couples therapy. And the person, one partner needs to make them sure that they're safe. And uh, oftentimes, they, they, there are situations where they shouldn't bring up certain things with their partner because it's going to be used against them at a later date. So um, the other, and then the last one is um, mental health issues. If, there is, um, if someone's dealing with significant psychosis or depression or uh, anxiety, they need to make sure they're getting treatment for that, again, apart from the couple's therapy work. So those are the three preconditions. So I'm not talking about abusive situations. That, again, that's another conversation. But I'm talking about uh, typical um, ways that we are not very responsive to our partners. That's when we can use the uh, feedback wheel. So let me tell you what the steps consist of. And then I'll go into a little bit of how I might use this with a couple. Um, The first step is expressing what happened. So if Michelle is using the feedback wheel with John, she might say something like, what happened is that you left your wet towel on the floor yesterday. It's really specific. You can't editorialize, you aren't allowed to say how you feel about it, you aren't allowed to say like you do this all the time, not speaking in absolutes, but just very specific what happened. And oftentimes I'll tell people they can only use two sentences for each of these. So the first one is what happened, the second one is what I make up in my head about that, or the story I tell myself about that. This is really important. This is like a key uh, if couples can start saying using this phrase, it can again transform their relationship. If you take one thing away from this uh, workshop today, start using with your couples the, the phrase, the story I tell myself or what I make up in my head about this. That can, it's a huge intervention. So, what happens is you say, uh, What happened is that you left your wet towel on the floor. The story that I make up in my head about that is that you don't care about me and that you are irresponsible and you're always doing things like this. And then we go to the third step, which is how I feel about that. And we have to use feeling words. And, um, you know, there are really only five or six basic feelings, maybe seven. You know, we're talking about Fear, anger, shame, sadness, joy, um, guilt, and um, they have to use real feeling words as they're trying to describe what um, happened for them uh, or what they were feeling when it happened. And um, you'll often find that people have a really hard time with this. Certain people, and and a lot of people don't have the emotional language, you know, I think it's really helpful to have some sort of um, resource written down on a piece of paper for people to look at different feelings that they can, so, um, you you know, you can can hand them a piece of paper with the feelings written on them. And then, um, and and, I'm getting off track again, but when you have them look at the feelings and start saying what they're feeling... You might, even, you might even have them close their eyes and breathe and check in with their body and say, where do you feel this in your body? And really start helping them get in touch with that. As I said, a lot of us are um, conditioned from a very young age not to feel any emotions, and it's very foreign um, for some people to be able to do that. And then the fourth step is to make a request, to say something like, and what I would really appreciate is, um, fill in the blank, you know, I'd really appreciate if you could hang up the towel or I'd really appreciate if you forget to hang up the towel that you could, you would apologize afterward. Or I'd really appreciate if you could just listen to my perspective and not get defensive about it, whatever the request is, but that it's, It's this idea that I mentioned before that this is what would work better for me. You're not a bad person. You're not even necessarily doing anything wrong. But when you leave the towel on the floor, I have really strong emotions that come up for me. I know this is my stuff. I know this is crazy stuff that I make up in my head. But this is my experience. And what would be really helpful is if you could do this and this to help me with this. That's speaking from the first person, that's speaking from vulnerability, and that's going to help your partner be be able to stay present with you in the conversation, more likely. uh, And like I said, the person who's speaking is using the feedback wheel. That person is the designated speaker, and the other person is a designated listener. And as the listener, um, it's really important that they are not being defensive, not explaining themselves not saying how it affected them, not blaming back, but they're, they're focused on taking in their partner's perspective. Sometimes I start out, for people who are just starting with this, we talk about um, just, just saying back what the person said to you. So um, what I heard you say is fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Um, that can be a really helpful intervention or if they're a little more advanced, they can say, It totally makes sense that you would be upset about this. I totally hear where you're coming from. Your reality, even though it's not the same as mine, for some reason it makes sense. And to help their partner feel understood and accepted and heard. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I just went through that in like two minutes, but I've had sessions where we take 45 minutes. Going through this and helping them slow down and be present with each other and see each other. Um, So often, when we get into anger, when we get into our heads, when we get into argument, it just gets away from this connection. And people, I I believe people are really terrified about vulnerability and being weak with each other. And um, especially if there's been a lot of conflict and a lot of difficult. Uh, stuff in the relationship. People have a hard time slowing down and staying connected with each other. And this is what we can do in couples therapy is guide them in this. I always, I, I'm always encouraging people to slow down. You know, I think uh, a lot of therapists talk too much. And I think that um, sometimes we just have to let things sink in, slow down Uh, stay silent as the therapist as they're doing the work and connecting and letting things sink in. And when we're doing this, this kind of work, um, I'm having them looking at each other. I might have them um, initiate some physical contact like holding hands or touching legs together, that they're looking into each other's eyes as they're talking through this. They're breathing. Um, They're really You know, and and as they talk about their feelings or their reality, I might ask them why this is important to them. I might get them to say something about how important their partner is to them. But we have to sort of guide them. These aren't these obviously aren't conversations we have on a day-to-day basis, and we have to get really good at changing the way we communicate in our life. And as a therapist the better that I get with my self-esteem and boundaries, the more confident I am to bring that into my sessions with couples. So this is really about doing my own work. And as I said before, I'm, I can be terrible at some of this relational stuff at times. Uh, there's a big difference between knowing what it says in the textbooks and being able to actually do it in our life. And so this is ongoing work that I recommend for everyone. And the other thing, another thing I wanted to come back to is um, what the timeouts look like. <clears throat> because oftentimes I'll tell people, you know, you're, you're doing a great job with this, you're making a lot of progress. But sometimes for people when they go home, um, they're going to have a hard time when we get into these emotionally um, triggering and conflict situations. Sometimes we just can't stay present and be a good listener for our partner. Sometimes it's just too hard. And in those cases, we have to learn how to take a really healthy time out. And we won't remember the right things to say when we're in the heat of the moment. So we have to say them ahead of time or beforehand. And part of what I might say is, uh, I might even write this, have them write this down. And it's everything you want to say when you're in the heat of the moment, but you don't think of. So it might say something like, Honey, my partner, who I love and care about so much, you're more important to me than anything else in the world. I love you and I care about you. And I don't want us to go down the path of saying things that are hurtful to, re- to each other. And so I think the best thing for me right now is to leave the situation before I get more emotionally escalated. This is my stuff. These are my emotions coming up and I'm having a hard time dealing with them. And I really don't want to say anything else hurtful. So I'm going to go take some time for myself and leave this situation. So that's what would be a really nice thing to say, but none of us are going to think of that when we're in the heat of the moment. So like I said, you either write that down. Some people keep it as a note on their phone and so that they can show it to their partner in the heat of the moment. But you think of a code word, you know, something completely random, like pineapple or something like that. And so if someone says pineapple, it means that they're saying all of those things to their partner and then it's a dead stop. Both of you go in separate rooms and you don't uh, continue engaging. Now, whoever calls the pineapple has to make a commitment to check in again because it can't be abandoning the other partner. It can't be leaving them. And so the commitment is in 10 to 20 minutes. I will check in with you again. That doesn't mean you have to go right back into the conversation. That just means you're checking in. So it might be a text. um, And it might just say something like, hey, I'm still pretty overwhelmed. I need some more time. Give me give me a couple hours. And at that point, it would be two to three hours I would I recommend um, because some people just need some a lot more time. So then in two to three hours, you still don't have to come back, <clears throat> um, You might, but you have to check in again. You might say, hey, I came and had coffee with a friend and um, I still need a little bit more time. How are you doing? Are you, you okay? Uh, let's check in again, maybe tonight or tomorrow or whatever it is, some length of time. But that's the the fact that you aren't just turning your back and walking out the door and your partner has no idea when you're coming back is can be a game changer for some couples. They ha, It's so nice to know that you're still there, you're still checking in and you're not abandoning me because that can be really, really hard for some people. I know we're getting up to the end of time here and there's a couple things I wanna make sure that uh, we cover before we wrap up here. And uh, I said a little bit about this before, but one thing I wanna talk about that uh, is really a, a really important part of relational life therapy is that um, neutral we don't worry about neutrality. you know I think that a lot of times therapists believe when they work with couples they have to be neutral and um, what what I'm not neutral about is those abusive behaviors that uh, that I w- mentioned a couple minutes ago that um, I will be very, uh, like I I said before, lovingly confrontational with someone who's, uh, actively doing any of these behaviors. So if someone says, yeah, um, he yelled in my face the other day, then I'll look at him and I'll say, wow, you yelled in her face. And, uh, if he says, well, yeah, well, she was, uh, you know, she was running late. So blah, blah, blah. I'll say, yeah, running late. But you yelled in her face. Where did you learn that that was an okay thing to do? Who in your who was the rager in your family growing up? So, <clears throat> what I'm doing there is I'm going to really quickly get to um, get away from blaming. I'm going to call out the bad behavior and make sure it's clear that it's unacceptable. And then I'm going to say, and then I'm going to say, you know, he might answer like, "Oh yeah, my dad yelled all the time. He was always yelling in my face as a kid." And I'll say, you know, your dad yelled in your face? You were just a little kid. That's not okay. And um, in the in those moments, we're teaching relational skills that someone may not have known. People uh, believe that what they grow up with is normal, and so what I'm doing with that, then I'll move into, you know, more of the loving, um, empathy and understanding and compassion. You were a kid and you were living with your dad yelling in your face day in and day out. Oh my gosh, that is horrible. And, um, it's incredible to see how quickly someone might have, um, this reality will sink in for them and they'll have an emotional reaction about it. And then um, it might go to, of course, you don't know how to have these good relationship skills with your partner. You never learned them growing up. They were never modeled for you. Are you willing to try to learn? Are you willing to have me teach you how to do this? I want so badly for you to have a good relationship. And so, um, I'm being confrontational with the behavior while at the same time I'm get, building a lot of rapport with the person I often say things like you are such a good person I see how hard you're trying I see how nice you are with your kids but your behavior is ruining your relationship are you willing to try something else that's the leverage that's leverage right there that's another good example but that I'm not gonna be neutral. If one partner has this kind of behavior, I'm gonna call them out on it and I'm gonna bring it up into the session. And I think that's something that a lot of therapists hesitate to do. They don't bring up the truth uh, about what's going on in the situation. And this is why I think in relational life therapy, we have really quick change sometimes because we're bringing up exactly what we're seeing in the dynamic. And so um, just to recap a couple things, I think anybody has the potential to change their relationship. I think that when people come in to therapy, 90% of the time, they are complaining about their partner and waiting for their partner to do something in order for them to feel okay in their relationship. And obviously, that doesn't work if both people are doing that. And so... We need to help people take responsibility for themselves, be accountable for themselves. And um, the way that I work, it's about teaching people about self-esteem, self-love, vulnerability. Those are all dirty words for a lot of people. (laughs) And um, the more you have those things, the more you can have good boundaries in situations with your partner, with your kids, with coworkers, with people in your life. And so um, we need to help people take responsibility for themselves, feel good about themselves, have good boundaries, and then they can bring that healthy energy into the conversation with their partner. And they can listen and take in their partner's reality and be receptive and open. So I know I went really fast here today, and maybe I was all over the place at times, But hopefully, you were able to take away some good information from this. Definitely go check out the Couples Therapist Couch podcast. Uh, Like I said, I've interviewed um, over 90 professionals, um, experts in the field of couples therapy, uh, had all kinds of different conversations about doing this kind of work with couples. And so uh, there's a wealth of information there. And um, again, my name is Shane Burkle. And uh, if you have any questions, you can definitely feel free to, you know, find me at CouplesTherapistCouch.com and uh, you can feel free to reach out. Thank you so much. I hope you guys have a great day and uh, take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.